This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. And I'm Jarrett Murphy from City Limits, and we're joined today on the Max and Murphy podcast by Bronx Councilman Richie Torres. Welcome, Councilman. Honored to be here. You've just been talking a little bit about the start of this term of the council, and why don't we kind of just start there. Uh, put us in what's, what's on the table now, and how are you feeling about the beginning of this, uh, this new term? I have to tell you, I've never been more excited to be a city council member. It's, it's, I have, I'm about to, uh, I'm actually performing the role of my dreams. And in some sense, even as a former speaker candidate, I, I view my defeat in the speaker's race as a blessing in disguise because the role that I have as the chairperson of oversight and investigations is the fulfillment of a dream. It's the kind of role that I've been looking to play from the moment I entered the city council. And, you know, we have a speaker who's committed to asserting the independence of the city council and bringing and setting a new standard for city council oversight. And to think that I will chair a committee that will be at the heart of that uh, is exciting and challenging at the same time. Why is that such a, why is that role so exciting to you? I mean, why, what is it about that that, that speaks to you so much? Why would you Well, I think when you're, when you're chairing, whether you're chairing a com the Committee on Public Housing or the Committee on Health, you can only oversee one or a few agencies. Whereas with oversight and investigations, you have universal jurisdiction, you have universal subpoena power. And so for someone like me who has a voracious appetite for city council oversight and wants to go wherever the problems lie and drive solutions to those problems, I have the best committee. Right? I would argue that it's the best committee in the city council. The only challenge is, you know, what, if you have finance or land use, you know what you're getting. The powers and the reputation of the committee are firmly established. Here, we're creating something from scratch. There is some historical precedent for oversight and investigations, but it, it, it is, it's receded so far into the past that we're effectively creating something new. And so that's both cause for excitement and anxiety at the same time. You know, we have to staff up. We're looking to staff, create an a division of professional investigators, somewhere between 10 to 15. And we're looking for a variety of investigatory experience, you know, whether it be journalistic or prosecutorial, uh, and the goal here is to almost, I, I, I analogize myself to an archaeologist. Our goal is to excavate the operational failures of, of city agencies. Because too often with city council oversight, we scratch the surface. I think what we're aiming to do is longer, deeper investigations that will drive systemic change in the way the city operates. That's the goal. Um, I'm, you know, I value quality over quantity. I'd rather do three substantive hearings than 30 superficial ones. One of the questions that's been put to you since it was announced that you would have this committee yeah. and you would have the, these new resources is how this interacts with the other investigatory bodies yeah. in the city, DOI, the Comptroller, the Public Advocate, obviously prosecutors, and you've discussed that very ably, but just to, to make that more concrete for people, yeah. what do you think, if you can imagine something, is something that would be likely to come before your committee that all those other creatures would be unlikely to touch? What's something that this will we'll hear about from you that we're not going to get from DOI or Scott Stringer or Tish James? Well, look, you know, we, we have the broadest oversight authority. And look, the council is supposed to be the chief oversight institution of the city council, right? We are the main counterbalance to the mayor, to the executive branch. You know, I see the oversight and investigations as a coordinating force, right? We're in a position to align the auditing function of the controller with the oversight function of the city council, or the auditing function, uh, the investigatory function of DOI 
with the oversight function of the City Council. And we can conduct our own investigations and then rely on those investigative findings to inform what our policy priorities should be, what our budgeting priorities should be. So we can be a force for greater coordination, both within the City Council, but also across city government. You know, are there, there's no issue that the Council could tackle that DOI would not have the authority to tackle by DOI. And certainly many of the hearings that we hold are going to be on investigative findings from DOI. But, but there's a crucial difference. I mean, first, we're going to be partners with DOI in holding the city accountable. But ultimately, DOI primarily exists to curb corruption. Right? It, it's, it investigates for the purpose of law enforcement. It's a law enforcement agency. The city council will investigate for the purpose of oversight. Right? We're not engaging in wiretapping. We're not pursuing criminal prosecution. We're investigating mismanagement rather than malfeasance. We'll leave it to the professional investigators at DOI to focus on law enforcement. Our goal is to make government more accountable and more transparent. So yes, we both have investigative functions, but ultimately our mission overlaps, but is fundamentally different. I mean, it sounds like it gets back to even this idea, more generally speaking, of effectiveness, right? Our are the city agencies that have thousands and thousands of employees and billions of dollars in budgets actually using that money well and performing the jobs right. that exactly. they're supposed to be performing. Right. Um, so we'll take one example. If, if and ultimately this, the, the speaker will have the final say in setting the investigative priorities of the city council, but you know it could be the case that DOI might not have jurisdiction over the MTA. But if the MTA is asking the city council for more funding, it could be reasonable for the council to say as a condition for receiving more funding, we want to investigate how those dollars would be spent to ensure that there is a greater accountability around budgeting. So I think our budgeting power, our policymaking power, our broad oversight power allows us to investigate beyond the jurisdiction of even the existing watchdogs. And, and you mentioned MTA, so that gets a little bit away from like the mayoral, the city, the mayoral yeah. administration. But is there anything else other than, let's say, MTA? I'm trying to think, you know, are there any other entities, any other uh, boards, practices, you know, things out there in the city that you would I think, look at? Look, in the beginning, we are going to focus like a laser on city agencies where our powers are most clearly defined. But over time, I hope to extend to non-mural government entities that might seek funding from the city council or private entities that have a contractual or regulatory relationship with the city. So in the beginning, we're going to focus disproportionately on city agencies. But over time, I hope the focus of oversight and investigations, O&I, expands to include a whole range of actors, both public and private. Interesting. Um, I was at an oversight hearing not long ago. It was the one you chaired about the lead. NYCHA lead issue. Yes. It was a very effective yes. oversight hearing. And obviously oversight has always been part of what the quote-unquote regular committees do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's an interesting interplay there between oversight and legislation and maybe one driving right. the other. How will this committee, newly empowered, work with the other committees in the council? And will they be, end up doing less oversight kind of in their portfolio because now it's sort of more your thing? No, there's a difference between the kind of day-to-day -day oversight that a standard committee would provide. And, you know, standard committees are, are so bombarded with the data. You know, you're moving from one topic to the next every month. 
Whereas what we're hoping to do is provide sustained scrutiny and sustained focus on, on a managerial failure in city government. So I think we're operating with much greater depth, with a much longer term focus than the standard committees would, but we're also collaborating with them. So the, the point of oversight and investigations is not to supersede the existing committee structure, it's to collaborate with them, to serve as a coordinating force. Um, a, a lot of what's baked in here, and this has been asked of the new speaker, and this has been asked of yeah. you before, but now that we're in the new term yeah. and you have this committee and you're talking about the excitement around reinvigorating this power of the city council, yeah. isn't everybody sort of acknowledging that under Melissa Mark Viverito, there was a lot of really good work done, but the council was just too close to the mayoral administration. I mean, I've seen the new speaker ask that a number of times. He dodges. He says, I don't know. I mean, he yeah. said, you know, isn't that really just what's being acknowledged here explicitly or implicitly? And we can just say it explicitly. I, I mean, and maybe that got a lot done, but now it's time for a different four years. I'm trying to get people to actually say what's 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 real here on the minds of the people with the most power in the city council. Yeah, it's not an either-or proposition, right? It, it, is, it is a matter of degree. So, you know, did we have some degree of independence under Speaker Melissa Margarito? Of course. There were moments of clear independence from the mayor, but I suspect Corey's going to be even more independent of the mayor. And part of it is the nature of his selection, right? I think a speaker who is selected independently of the mayor is more disposed to be independent. So let's take... And remember, obviously, you remember my famous observation. I said, you know, one of the, I think the core value of the county organization lies in providing a mechanism by which a speaker can be selected through an orderly process independently of the mayor. Because an independent city council is not merely a public good, it's a necessity for separation of powers and checks and balances. Uh, I do remember that. And that assertion. was a con and I thought it was a an obvious <laughs> observation, but it was received as a controversial comment. So. Well, I I still think in some weird way there's the possibility of a city council speaker candidate just figuring out a way to twenty six plus votes that doesn't rely on a deal with the county yeah, leaders I, or a deal with the mayor. I mean, I I I feel like if if not the county organization, then which you know like an institution like the Progressive Caucus could be co-opted by the mayor, as it was in 2013. And without a leviathan, I feel like the process would disintegrate into a war wall against all. And, and like, how would you go about deciding who should be finance chair? How would you decide who should be Landry's chair? How would you make the... Because Wait, uh, isn't... But anyway, that's a longer conversation. But is it, well, I, you know, that, that is a little bit about some of what I wanted to ask you about. I mean, isn't in that situation like what we're told has been happening in the current situation is whoever is the new speaker meets with all of his constituents or her constituents, the 50 other members, and here's what they think they're good at and here's what they think they want and has a big spreadsheet with the chief of staff like Corey said he had with Ramon Martinez and figures that out, who's best suited for these things without having to take into account the influence of these party Bosses who control these blocks of votes. Yeah, I will tell you that that without the county organization, the Bronx would be at a structural disadvantage because we we have fewer numbers than Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens. So the larger boroughs would inevitably dominate the process. But what we lack in numbers, we make up for in unity. 
and by functioning as a united delegation, we're able to secure a disproportionate share of powerful committees for the poorest borough in New York City. I consider that an enormous public value. And just just uh, one or two more things on this. That unity is something you broke in, in I did, yeah. the past. So I, I speak, I, so I see the advantages of both. Uh, I, I know the value of unity because I was the sole defection in 2013. Right. And so one thing I wanted to ask you now yeah. that it's behind us is you wanted to be speaker. I did. Um, but you, correct me if I'm wrong, you weren't able to convince the Bronx County to get behind your, your candidacy. And was that because of what had happened previously, or is that because, you know, there's other speculation out there. Carl Hastie is already a speaker of the Assembly, yeah. so, you know, the Bronx doesn't want two speakers because then the power dynamic, you know, you make compromise in a, in a grand bargain, of, so to speak. Yeah. Illuminate us, you know, what, yeah, what happened. Ultimately, I lost, and although in hindsight I would argue it was a blessing in disguise, but ultimately I lost for the same reason that every other candidate lost because Corey was the best candidate. And I think his conduct as speaker so far de demonstrates that he by far would have, would, would have been the best speaker among all the candidates who ran for speaker. He won on the strength of the relationships he built. He forged the deepest relationships. And much has been said about the question of race. And certainly I am as race conscious as any member of the city council. You know, many of the causes that matter to me, um, have profound implications for communities of color. But ultimately in politics, as in life, personal relationships are even more important than racial identity politics. And the fact is that Corey won by virtue of forging the deepest personal relationships in the city council. Ultimately, as a rank-and-file member, I want to support a speaker I know and I trust and who has put real time and energy into cultivating a relationship with me, a friendship with me. And no one built a broader set of relationships than Corey Johnson. So I did not lose because of the Bronx County organization. I lost because Corey Johnson was actually the best candidate for the job. Since you mentioned uh, the Leviathan a few minutes ago, yes. which reminds me of sophomore philosophy, I feel justified asking you a philosophical question. Oh, God. Right up your alley. Yeah, I know you're just starting this, it, it depends this, new, on the, this new post. Uh, but the kind of problems that you expect to be looking at in government, the delivery of government, the yeah. performance of government, what is your picture as to what drives them? Do you think it's driven by largely incompetence, moral failures, narrow perspective? What's behind, what do you think is behind some of the problems that you, in your previous role as an oversight person, like what, what drives us? Why, why, do we, why do we have this conversation? I mean, I've been quoting Newton's first law of motion, inertia, is that an object at rest will remain at rest unless acted upon by an outside force, right? The mindset is, well, this is how we've always done it, therefore it must be right. Whatever stands the test of time um, must be the right approach, the right method. And there needs to be an external force like the city council that says, no, the system is broken, and we have to create pressure and incentive to reform those systems so that government is more accountable and transparent. Right? We're meant really to kick government in the butt, <laughs> to, to spur them to action, to, to exert pressure on, on bureaucracy. I think that is the core function of the city council. 
there are limits to what we can do legislatively. There are limits to the resources we can allocate financially, but there is no limit to our oversight function. It is the broadest authority that we have as an institution. I wonder if there's a forest versus the trees tension. You know, theoretically, uh, strong oversight would increase confidence in government, right? Yeah. You know that people are checking it, making sure yeah. it's working right. But there's so much distrust of government already that do you worry at all that by it will be your job to get headlines for the investigations you do? So those will get headlines. And the picture people get of government will be about incompetence, wrongdoing, inertia. It's a fair how do you how do you yeah. make sure as someone who I know as a progressive believes in yeah. government, how do you make sure that while you fulfill your oversight function that that larger context about what government does and how it has it's, good days and bad days doesn't is, get lost? It is the most important and challenging question. Because you have to be careful not to you know to be progressive is to believe that we can and should progress as a society and that government can have a role in engineering progress. And you want to be careful not to undermine confidence in government itself, especially progressive governance at the municipal level, because there is a deep strain of cynicism and skepticism among the intelligentsia and the general public. Having said that, you know, I think oversight has two dimensions. There's advocacy and accountability. And I felt that I struck that balance as thoughtfully as I could as chair of the Public Housing Committee. So I would be aggressive in holding NYCHA accountable for the dysfunction and mismanagement within the institution. At the same time, um, I was thoughtful enough to place NYCHA's challenges within the historical context of disinvestment, is that our public housing system is failing not because of government incompetence, but because of disinvestment from the critical infrastructure, from our core safety net of public housing. So I did the best that I could to, to strike a balance between holding NYCHA accountable while at the same time advocating for the Housing Authority. And I would bring that same balance into oversight and investigations in relation to every agency. I, think, I mean, I think NYCHA is such a great example of, of yeah. what Jarrett was asking about and what you're saying there because by a lot of measures, including your own, the NYCHA chair has done some very good things in shaking up what's happening at NYCHA and implementing the next generation NYCHA plan. And this administration has been credited by many, including yourself yeah. at times, yeah. for some of the progress. Um, but then it's almost like month after month, some new big thing comes out that, so maybe, I, I just wonder sort of in terms of, of NYCHA, is there is there any um, universe for rethinking the whole thing? Not, not I'm not, not talking bulldozing, right, yeah. the, the the buildings, but I'm talking, I don't know, decentralizing it in some way or, or figuring, you know, is that anything you think about with NYCHA? Look, I, I wish we lived in a world where the federal government would fully fund public housing, but that is not the world we live in, right? And the, there is actually a federal law that prohibits the use of federal dollars for public housing development. Right? It's, it's illegal to use public housing, federal dollars for public housing development. And the only means by which you can access federal funding for public housing is a public-private partnership. And so that's why I support the RAT program, not as an ideal. Right? The ideal is fully funded public housing development, but as a practical necessity, right? as an adaptation 
to the political reality in which we live, is that if, if the RAT program is the only means by which we can access more federal resources for preserving and rehabilitating public housing, then I would support going in that direction to a greater extent, even if it conflicts with my ideological preferences, I see it as a practical necessity for preserving public housing, right? Converting from Section 9 to Section 8 means stabilizing the funding operating funding stream for public housing. It means broadening the constituency and support of public housing. It means bringing new capital dollars that will gut, that will lead to gut rehabilitations of public housing developments. You know, the kind of developments that have undergone conversions under RAD have not just seen a new boiler or a new roof, have seen a profound transformation of their living conditions. So, so that, I, I see RAD and public-private partnerships generally as an effective and practical approach to preserving public housing in a world of federal disinvestment from Section 9 public housing. Let me, um, you mentioned the Progressive Caucus earlier. We talked about that. Yeah. You dropped out of the I did. Progressive Caucus. Have I did. You stuck, you stuck with that decision? I did, yes. Can you take us a little bit more inside? That was seemed to be over certain members of the Progressive Caucus not supporting you around your decision yeah. on the Right to Know Act? Or, or can you further enlighten us a little bit about that decision? Um, well, I think first, it's based on a desire to be independent. Right? I'd rather be my own person than be associated with a, with a caucus. Right? And I've, I've come to value my independence. Um, on the, on the Right to Know Act, look, I would never expect colleagues to support me uh, at the expense of their own conscience, right? If you had substantive differences with the compromise that I brokered, then you owe it to yourself and to your own conscience to take a position that reflects where your heart lies, where your mind lies. But, but I thought it was wrong for a number of people to blindside me the day of the vote. Uh, rather than let me know in advance that, you know, I, I cannot support your compromise, I have substantive disagreements. Like, uh, but to blindside me the day of the vote, I thought, was wrong. Um, and then I felt like there's just a difference of opinion as to how to approach governance. Is that I feel like if there is an opportunity to move the ball forward on police reform, especially with a bureaucracy as entrenched and as complicated as the NYPD, then we should pursue it. And to think that we would give veto power to advocacy organizations over the legislative priorities of the city council, that's, that's a worldview that I reject. Right? That's a different approach to governance from the one that I embrace. And I felt like it was no longer appropriate for me to be part of the caucus. Do you think part of that is that there's a <clears throat> disagreement about how you define progressivism and maybe people who feel they have a monopoly I, I, over and, that label? Well you can be progressive without membership in the Progressive Caucus, right? You know, my passionate progressive advocacy for residents in public housing was never dependent on the Progressive Caucus. It was deeply rooted in who I am and in where I come from and the beliefs and values that I bring to bear on public life. So there are plenty of council members who have genuine progressive credentials without membership of the Progressive Caucus. And, and I reject the notion that the Progressive Caucus has a monopoly on the term. Having said that, it has been a constructive force in the City Council. And many of the members of this Progressive Caucus are among the most talented public servants I know. So I do respect the members of the caucus, but I can work with them regardless of whether I'm a member of the caucus. 
time for just a couple more, I think, so I'll ask my last question, which is just back to the, the oversight role. In legislative bodies, members tend to kind of pick a path. You're either an oversight person or you're a legislative person, just as how one gets defined. And that can have consequences later in one's career if you're seen as a person who has not produced a lot of legislative product, as someone who is maybe more prosecutorial in their approach. Um, I have done both. Uh, <laughs> but going forward, is that uh, being a person who will be very closely associated with oversight, are there political risks in that for you? Or are there political no, benefits? No, there's no evidence. Again, keep in mind that I, I, I used to chair a committee that, that is traditionally thought to have no legislative power, public housing, and yet we were able to be both prolific legislators as well as prolific overseers of the New York City Housing Authority. We were able to enact legislation in fields like predatory equity and civil forfeiture and, and clean heat and mold abatement and remediation, police reform, um, the opioid crisis. So there's no evidence that chairing a committee that largely does oversight would, would be a stumbling block to passing bills in the city council. You can do both. But I do have concerns about the notion of measuring productivity by the number of bills you pass. I think what matters is the quality of your impact on the governance of the city, not the quantity of the bills that you pass. And that impact can manifest itself in the form of legislation, but just as importantly, it can manifest itself in the form of oversight hearings, investigation, and the real-world impact of, the, of those oversight hearings and investigations. We want to get you in our last couple of minutes to to weigh in a little bit on um, where you see the the mayor at. But I just wanted to follow up on um, one thing first. Uh, there's a lot of talk now that now that we're in this new term, there's like 40 council members who are going to be term limited out yeah. at the end of the term. Um, as we sit here in early 2018, is there a next job that you want in government? Is there is there uh, retirement? <laughs> I think you're a little young for that. I want to be oversight um, and investigation chair forever. Maybe you can uh, you can run the committee uh, from inside the council. Um, but is there a position? I know people have talked about you for Congress. Uh, obviously, there'll be races for public advocate and controller and mayor and yeah. borough president. Any of those appeal to you more than others? I have no settled view. Look, I I will tell you that I'm. I do have an interest in political advancement, but what that exactly looks like remains to be seen. You know, I have not made a final decision for myself about what my next step looks like, but um, I'm going to do everything I can to keep my options open. Okay. Um, so, as again, as we sit here uh, in January 2018, the new term has started. Where, what do you, you know, again, as representing now this this beefed-up committee that will be looking cl more closely at the mayor's administration. Broadly speaking, you know, how do you think he's doing and, and what do you think he needs to really work on? What concerns you about his his leadership? I, I think the mayor has been fundamentally, has given a fundamentally solid performance. I mean, whether it's UPK or affordable housing or you know, public safety, you know, he has made real progress in his, now he's in his fifth year as mayor. But the, the issue for me is not the mayor, right, is that the, the bureaucracies that he theoretically oversees 
have a life unto themselves, right? Most of the dysfunction in city government pre-exists Mayor de Blasio, and most of it will outlast him. And so ultimately, the target of oversight and investigations is not the mayor, it's the bureaucracy, right? Which often hamstrungs the mayor himself. And so, and so there's no one who has a greater interest in, in seeing oversight and investigations succeed than the mayor, because our, our, our mission is the same, to make government work with greater effectiveness. I don't know if he'll fully embrace your new role with uh, transparency and uh, gusto, but I guess we'll see. Well, Councilman, we know as a veteran returning for your second term, you probably have to go haze some of the new, newer members yes. uh, part of the ritual, so we'll let yes. you get back to that, but thank you very much for joining us. People love to be hazed by a 29-year-old. <laughs> Thanks a lot.